Hamilton wrote the other 51. How do you ride like you're running out of time? Right day and night like you're running out of time. Every day you fight like you're running out of time. Like you're running out of time. Are you running out of time? How do you ride like tomorrow won't arrive? How do you ride like you needed to survive? Jen Moritz, welcome to The Other 51. Thanks for joining me. I'm so excited to have been able to be here tonight. Did you know I had a podcast? <laughs> I had no idea. This is news to me. No, that's a lie. You listened to at least one of my episodes. I've done 44. You've listened to one. No, I don't think that's true. You didn't listen to Bobby Crawford? No, I really... No. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> oh, so this is wonderful. This is the first time my wife is hearing my podcast as she's on it. And it's not awkward at all. No, no, this isn't weird. Um, well, I just can't wait for our dogs to trot in. That's going to make it awesome. But <laughs> the reason I wanted to have you here is not just because you're my wife and you're awesome and we ju you just had a birthday, we just had an anniversary, but you are the first editor that I have ever had as a guest on The Other 51. Makes sense. And as you're also the best editor that I know and best editor that I've ever worked with, I figured that was natural. Thank, thank you, because that's what I was going to say, but you said it for me. <laughs> so before, and you wouldn't know this since you don't listen to my podcast, but since uh, uh, we always start with a little bit of Hamilton talk, and I talk a lot of Hamilton on this podcast, but you are actually the person who introduced Hamil me to Hamilton. Yeah. So how did you do that? How did you get introduced to Hamilton? Uh, somebody at work, actually, her name is Rachel, had been bugging me to listen to it. And she swore up and down that I would love it. And I actually ignored her for maybe three or four months. And then um, I drove to New York. And for some reason, I decided to download it. And I cried and I laughed and I yelled and I listened to it back to back on my entire ride down. And then on my entire ride home a couple of days later... And then I forced you to sit down and listen to it too. In the chair right next to, right there. And I think I tried to, I tell a story, I tried to get up to get Ellie, our daughter, like something to drink. And you said, no, sit down <laughs> and listen to it. So what was it about, is you're a Broadway person. You've kind of been my gateway into a lot of Broadway shows and a kind of a Broadway person. Um, what about this show kind of struck you that first time? Oh God. Well, I'm a big fan of Rent. Mm -hmm. And it reminded me a lot about Rent, which maybe it really doesn't anymore, but it did the first time I listened to it. It was just so different. It was something that nobody had ever really heard before, and except people who were about six months earlier on the bandwagon than I was. And honestly, that was it. It was just different, and it was funny, and it was fast, and it was fun to sing along to, and it made me cry. And when's the last time a show really made me cry the very first time I listened to it? Cool. Uh, so do you still have a favorite song? Uh, oh... I, uh, anything by King George. Really? And anything that's really fast. Okay. I won't make you do Guns and Ships. She can do Guns and Ships pretty flawlessly. Because the last time I was on a podcast, they made me do a McDonald's rap. So thank you for that. <laughs> we can do the McDonald's rap later. That's on my list. Um, yeah, I, I remember, I think it was you called me after, uh, the first King George song. And uh, I'm listening to it on the way down. You're like, oh, my God, this show, you need to listen to this when I get home. I think it was. Um, is it what comes next? Is that the first? Uh, Honestly, note? I don't remember. But I, I don't even know that I called you. I think maybe I texted you when I stopped because it was so good. But I didn't want you to listen to it without me. <laughs> so um, and I, I did want to give you uh, some extra culture talk here because you can talk a little bit about Dr. Mooter. <laughs> 
your latest obsession to, to re- that kind of replaced Hamilton. Um, so can you tell everybody about uh, your boy? Yeah, because he is my boy now. Yes. Uh, so Dr. Mooter was sort of, maybe he actually officially was, the first plastic surgeon or real plastic surgeon in the United States. And in the 1800s, doctors didn't have to be licensed. They didn't have to have any kind of medical experience. They could just literally put a sign on their house and say they were a doctor and be a doctor. And so their main goal was to fix things that were going to kill people and to do it as fast as possible, regardless of how much it hurt them. So Dr. Mooter comes along and he goes to Europe and he studies all these different ways to practice medicine and they're a lot more compassionate and they want to make people happy. So he comes back to the United States and he actually was Dr. Mutter. He went over there, came back, decided he wanted to be Dr. Mooter because it sounded uh, much fancier. And as an editor, I love that he threw that little umlaut on his U and was like, that's it, now I'm fancy. Which is basically exactly Motley Crue's origin story, which is why this is awesome too. Right. And we actually had a conversation at work today about how uh, my coworker Charles, whose last name is Benoit, uh, is actually Benoit. But uh, his family changed the way they pronounce his name for sort of the opposite reason. They wanted to be less fancy. But in <laughs> Mooter's case, he wanted to be more fancy. So he comes back to the United States and he starts basically this campaign in Philadelphia to be a more compassionate doctor. And people who would say, no, we're not going to fix that burn or that scar or that horn growing out of your head because it's not going to save your life. It's just for ease and comfort. Uh, it's cosmetics. He said, okay, let's do that, and we want to make you happy, and we're going to do it in a more compassionate way, and we're going to use things like anesthesia, and we're going to get to know you, and so he became this pioneer. But the reason I love him is because he did a lot of weird surgeries, and before he died, he donated almost 2,000 specimens to start a museum of weird stuff, and as you know, because you were there, that's what we did this weekend. We went to see his 2,000 weird things. And along with, like, there's several thousand other weird things that have been added to his collection since then. Uh, I talked about this on a podcast today, including a 40-pound colon. Uh, I got a strange look from my other podcast guests. I don't listen to your podcasts, but I saw that you talked about it, and I was a little mad because I thought we were talking about it. <laughs> oh, that's right. I posted it. I'm like, how would you know what I talk about yeah, on a podcast? I, I, don't, I don't know that you podcast, but every once in a while, those things pop up on my newsfeed. <laughs> So, <laughs> so I know the, you talked about the colon today. So what was your favorite part in the Mooter Museum? The lady with the horn on her head. All right. I can't remember her name, and I don't want to look it up and get distracted, but she's amazing. It was a French woman who had a horn growing up. Like an, this is not a euphemism. It's an actual yes. horn. It was, like, it was like an eight-inch unicorn horn that just sagged down in front of her face. <laughs> and it was a lot. And he, she was his favorite. So it was awesome to see this wax mold of her looking so realistic. And I showed it to some people at work yesterday and they handled the colon really well and they handled the Siamese twins really well, but they kind of got grossed out by the horn. Really? I figured the colon would have would have freaked people out. Yeah, no. I mean, it's it's like if they only knew that was the real colon. Yeah. And this is just a wax person, but the colon was okay and the wax person not so okay. Soap Lady, also a, I, I don't know, she's a couple hundred years old or a hundred I'd say a couple hundred years old. She turned into soap after she was buried. That also didn't freak them out. But the horn, that was just too much. So speaking of work, we can kind of get into editing now. You are a, you are the, what's your title again? Chief copy editor? Senior, senior copy editor. Senior copy editor. I still got, I still think of you as a chief, but senior it's okay. I don't know your title either. I couldn't even begin to guess. I have like 12 words in my title. Hey, well, That's the I have three, so. <laughs> so senior copy editor at Dixon Schwabel Advertising in Rochester. Um, Victor, um, for most people listening, it'll be Rochester, will be fine. Um, so can you kind of talk about a little about your career path? Like, how did you become an editor? 
Uh, yeah. So actually, when I was a kid, I always wanted to be a reporter. So that's what I did. I went to school to be a reporter. But I probably should have known because I went to SUNY Morrisville for two years. And editing was my favorite class. We actually had to take an editing class. And I can't remember if I took two or if I took four, one in each semester. Um, but I, it was always my favorite class. And I always had red pens on me. But I still went ahead and became a reporter. And I hated it. And I was terrible at it. And I only did it for a year before I... Uh, unceremoniously decided that was no longer what I was going to do after this entire lifetime buildup. So I, um, I actually, one of my former bosses recommended that I go down and interview for a job in Binghamton as a copy editor. And I did it, even though it's not what I wanted to do. And I took the job, even though it still kind of wasn't what I wanted to do. And I learned how to be an editor and a page designer on the job. And I totally fell in love with it. So, uh, few years of that, I think five years of that. Later, I had moved up a little bit and I decided it was time to leave newspapers. So I went into higher ed for four or five years where I was an associate director of communications, but I really did a whole lot of editing and layout. And um, when I was done with that, that was when we decided to throw our lives up in the air and move up to Rochester. And now I'm a copy editor for an ad agency and it is absolutely the perfect job. Why? Why is it the perfect job? Because I get to do what I love so, all day long. And wait, and I am very lucky to work with about 115 people who appreciate what I do, which is a very rare thing to find as an editor. It is because I think, you know, I, I, I've talked to a lot of writers and, um, you know, the best writers know the value of an editor. You can hear our dogs kind of tripping around <laughs> in the background here. Um all, all, all the best writers very much appreciate and understand the value of a good editor and what an editor can bring. Um, but that is rare. And why do you think that is? Why do you think so many, you know, why, why, why is that appreciation of what you do tend to be a rare thing? Well, I actually think it works both ways. I think it's rare to find a writer who fully appreciates an editor. And I think it's rare to find an editor who fully appreciates a writer because we all have these giant egos. And in theory, we're doing what we're doing because we love doing it and we think we're good at it. And, you know, I, it takes a while to learn and it takes the right kind of person to learn that you might be really proud of what you do, but it's not always your baby. And so sometimes the writers have to let go and say, okay, in a way, this is not my baby. I have to let the editor take over here. And at the same time, the editor has to do the opposite and say, okay, I've done what I can, but this is not my baby. It's the writer's baby. And I have to let them have their voice and their preferences because that's their job too. So I think it's rare that you find that back and forth. And some days it works better than other days. But in general, that's hard. I mean, imagine you write. Well, you know, you have written these massive things that you pour everything you have into and then you give them to me and I rip them apart and I make you cry and I'm really sorry about that. <laughs> but they're always, but then they're always better at the end of the game, at the end of the day. I mean, that's. But imagine if you didn't love me and I ripped it apart. And you had no obligation to listen to me. You might not. So I'm really lucky when I get a writer who respects it and then chooses to listen because they don't have to and I can't make them and I have to be okay with that. So what do you love about editing? I mean, what is it that, that about that that clicked with you more than reporting? I like process. Okay. I like rules and I like order and that all lends itself perfectly to editing. But what I really love is that it taught me that I'm – I am a writer, but I'm also not. I, I can write, and I'm sometimes a good writer, but I'm not always a good writer. But I am a good editor, and 
I know that because I know I'm not a great writer. What's the difference? I think it's where it comes from. I struggle coming up with what to say, unless I'm really passionate about it. Then it's really easy. But I struggle coming up with what to say and how to get it out there. But I know I'm my strength is in seeing what somebody else has come up with and figuring out how to just make it a little bit better. I guess. Yeah. So you know the 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 issue can be like you you like I can be really good at going from blank page to getting something down and getting a good kind of outline going or like structure going or kind of you know general idea on it. But you are very good at, at why we work well together. You are very good at taking that and fixing it up and boosting where it needs to be and finding the weak points and and that right because also i'm very arrogant and i'm very judgmental (laughs) and so that's that's sort of what an editor is whether they want to admit it or not and whether they let people see it or not you have to be kind of arrogant and kind of judgmental right at your core but then you know nice on the outside but also there's an a an air of humility too because i mean i know from working with you and, and, and other editors that, you know, good editors don't want to tinker with every piece of writing they get. They don't want to make their mark on it. Right. I love when I can tell somebody that that was flawless or yes, I made a whole bunch of changes, but they're nothing significant. What you wrote is actually really great. I just need to make it so nobody gets hung up on something that makes it seem less great, if that makes sense. Right. And I, and I, I also was just telling somebody the other day that our jobs is our job is to uh, our job is to do the best we can, and then when we get to that point where it has to come out of our hands, just to let it go. Because my job is to do everything I can to help you, and then step back and let it be your thing. So you went to a, a copy editors conference earlier this year. I sure did. And uh, so what's a what's a conference of copy editors like? <laughs> oh my God, we're all such nerds. <laughs> uh, it is. It is. Both awesome and humbling to be in a room with 500 people who are as nerdy as you are because I can say absolutely anything. I can make jokes about syntax and people will laugh. Nobody in any context of my life anywhere laughs except at an editor's (laughs) conference. Uh, But on the flip side, those people are also making jokes and they're so much funnier and they're so much smarter than me. So I, uh, in my personal life, might think I'm a really good editor, but then you go to this conference and I'm just this tiny little person with all these other nerds it's so great i remember one of the things you 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 called me about because you love this so much and i think you've written about this on the ds site um was about kind of looking at the role of an editor as a gardener and i know a lot of times you know the the kind of popular perception among writers and among maybe non-writers too is uh editor as like like the rule keeper like the gate you know kind of like the the you know the person at the gate or like the, the, you know, swinging the ax and like delightfully, you know, being a delightful persnickety person about language. But what was this, the the idea of language of editing as gardening? So I'm not going to do it justice the way I did it eight months ago or whenever I went. Uh, But basically, you know, our job is not to slam down the gates. Our job is to tend the language and to help the things that need to grow, grow and to weed out the things that really shouldn't be there. But you know, at some point, something becomes so prominent that you have to nurture it and you have to help it grow and you have to bring it to light so that people people are going to use things, whether I want them to or not. It's my job to make sure that they use them in the nicest way possible. So that kind of gets away from the gardening. But 
you know, the root of it is that it's my job to tend to the language. It's not my job to define it or create it or enforce it. It is just to help it grow to where it's going because English is going to grow whether I'm there or not. So if I'm there and I can help it grow in a better way, then I've done my job. What's the biggest misperception you think people have about editors? Um, I, I think that we're all completely locked into the rules. And there are plenty of editors who are very locked into the rules and who probably enjoy tearing things apart. But I uh, I have this trick that I probably shouldn't say out loud. Um, but, you know, if I, if I have to really tear something apart, I try not to let the writer see that any more than they have to. So if I'm tracking changes for somebody, I will turn them off if I know I'm going to have a lot of edits because I don't want to overwhelm them and I don't want to make them feel bad about the work they gave me because really I'm just trying to make it better. Um, So I think there's some misconception or misperception that people think we enjoy hacking things and and tearing them down when really it's quite the opposite. I want you to feel good when I give it back to you because then you're going to like working with me and you're going to like what you got. Right. And that's the point. Like I give it to an editor, you or someone else, it should come back as the best version of this, whether it's a few tweaks and a few commas changed or whether it's, you know, I've rewritten this, but it's better now. And it's, and, and you know, that's what you're good at. And obviously because we're married, you know, my voice pretty well, but you, you can kind of get at that point where like, this is what you meant to say, or this is what I think you were trying to say, but now I've said it in a, you've said it better. And that's, it comes back better. Right. Hopefully. And the other thing is I think people, people think that we just follow a rule book and that's it. And that there's no real critical thinking behind it when really it should be all critical thinking top to bottom. I mean, I'm a firm believer that you learn all of the rules and then you start breaking them. Because I, I, right now, I work with 100 style guides every single day. And if I had one rule book, I would never get anything done. Because I would spend all my time fighting with writers and clients and account executives and, I mean, you name it. But instead, I have 100 style guides that fit each person's preference. And some of them make up rules right and left. And that's okay. Because at the end of the day, they're consistent, top to bottom. What they're putting out makes sense. It's clean. Nobody is going to notice that they choose to capitalize something that the English language wouldn't normally capitalize, and everybody's happy. So what, what is your – when you see someone on Facebook talk about how they love grammar or post, like, one of those, like, it's, it's memes or they're, they're, they're meme or, like, an, the Oxford comma, Jesus, the Oxford comma <laughs> arguments um, – as someone who does this professionally and like this is what you do this is how 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 you so how you you know make a living what's your reaction to that in general it's maddening okay because it comes it comes right back to what you think an editor is and what you think an editor should be if you're out on facebook making fun of the difference between there there and there and you're arguing with people over the oxford comma then you're absolutely missing the point of what editing is if you have an opinion on the Oxford comma that lands 100% on either side of the argument, then you're not a good editor. Okay. That's just how it goes. So what 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 is the good editor, I not version of that argument, but what what's the good editor portion of that? Well, of that? you have to logic things out and you have to think about things critically and you have to say, you know, okay, I'm in favor. And the Oxford comma is the perfect example. So it sort of has to be used. You have to say, well, okay, my personal opinion, I don't like the Oxford comma. However, there is a time when you should use it because it adds clarity and it's necessary and it makes things more readable and nobody is going to stumble over it. And then there are times when 
Somebody really prefers the Oxford comma, but it doesn't make any sense to use it in context because it creates a stumbling block where there shouldn't be one. So that's what you, that's how you have to think about those things. And the average person doesn't think about them that way. They think about them as rules. I like the Oxford comma, so I use it everywhere. I don't like it, so I don't use it anywhere. Well, those aren't editors. Those are people who have a preference. Editors are the people who parse through each of those things and figure out how it makes the most sense and what is easiest for people to read. Or those are people who think, I learned this in school 20, 30 years ago, and this is how I feel educated now. So I feel smart because I learned this and remember this rule. I guess, but I'd like to think that's not why they're doing it. Although there certainly is some kind of superiority there. Mm-hmm. I mean, because I have it too. Right. But um, I, I, I don't know. I think that's kind of what gives editors a bad name. It gives anybody who likes rules a bad name. Right. So now that the dogs are outside, we can yes. listen to them howl instead of tap around the room. Okay. Or, the, okay. or start fighting with each other. Yes. They add a certain je ne sais quoi to the, uh, to the podcast. You um, podcast. <laughs> well played. So, okay. Um, for people listening, um, f- from the editor's perspective, what are, let's say, one or two things that someone can do right now today to make their writing better? That's so easy. Read their own stuff. Go right back to the beginning of what you wrote and read it again. And nine times out of ten, you're going to catch words that are missing or misspellings or, you know, I have a bad habit. I will write something out and then second guess myself and I'll go back and I'll rewrite it and then I'll tinker with it a little more. And that is always when I make mistakes. So I have to go back and I have to read from beginning to end because that's how you catch those things. Um, And also write the way you talk. Mm -hmm. Nobody says... Hello, it is nice to meet you. Right. I am a copy editor. That, that's not how people talk. You right. say, hi, it's nice to meet you. I'm a copy editor. Right. You have to write the way you speak. Nobody can read what you write if you're being all stilted and trying to be super grammatically correct. And that's, that's just not how people talk. So read your things, write the way you talk. And honestly, if you do those two things, you really can't go wrong. The, the write like you talk. I mean, my editor, Pat Vecchio and Olean used to tell us that write like you talk, write like you talk only better. And I think that gets back to the rules thing, because I think a lot of people are, are taught early on, you don't use contractions. Contractions are wrong. You don't use them. But yeah, use you, contractions. Use yeah. them all the time. <laughs> Everywhere. Put three in a sentence. I think they're fantastic. Start your sentence with but or and. End it with the word for. You are allowed to do all those things. They're not actually rules. <laughs> I don't care what anybody told you growing up. You can start a sentence with but and you can end it with for. And the reading out, the reading your stuff out loud back is key. I tell my students all the time, read it out loud is even right. easier. Print it out if you've been, especially now if you've been typing it on a computer, print it out if you can and read it. You'll just, seeing it or hearing it, you'll you'll catch so much. It's true, but at the same time, so at work, I can't really read things out loud. Sometimes I do, quietly. Um, but you know when you read something you get a voice in your head Mm -hmm. and when you read it out loud you lose that voice because that's not what you really sound like so I do find that sometimes it helps to read in my head using a specific voice so at work I have four writers and they all have a very specific voice and for at least three of them I'm very familiar with that voice Mm -hmm. so when I read their work I'm able to hear them in my head as I'm reading and that helps a lot because if I read it out loud, I would lose their voice. I would have my voice. Mm-hmm. But if I read it in my head, I can actually hear them mm. while I'm reading their thing. And that helps because it helps me understand what their point is, even if I'm stumbling on something. All right. Here's the moment of truth that we've been waiting for. Tell everybody my biggest vices problems as a writer. Um, he can't say his own name in less than 73 words. <laughs> 
True story. I honestly, that's it. <laughs> you, you just you just use too many words. I, I, I do. most people use too many words. Really? Well, okay. I've cut you off every time you've tried to talk. So, <laughs> yes, most people use too many words. So, okay, as an editor now, what's the? How do you get better at using fewer words aside from reading it out loud, at getting that? But what's a way to to kind of train yourself to use fewer words? And that's really hard I, because I struggle with that too. I write an email that should be one sentence and it's six sentences because it just takes me a while to feel like people understand where I'm coming from. But you have to give your readers the benefit of the doubt sometimes that they're going to understand without all the context. I mean, yes, there has to be some context, but what I'm doing right now out loud is exactly what people tend to do too much of in writing. Um, and, and, and you have to think about redundancies first ever the first time it opened i mean those kind of phrases they just they just bog you down like i um uh i'm a real stickler for the phrase in order to okay. there's no need to say that you know i just it's a lot of that kind of stuff if you really think about what you're writing you don't need those words to be perfectly clear you're really just stringing your readers along with extra letters and and your meaning would get across just fine without them so we have a uh, we also have a uh, a Star Wars issue to get to with uh, the title of the upcoming movie. We're recording this uh, <laughs> of about two months, I think, less than two months before uh, the Last Jedi comes out. Um, and we won't get too far into the nerdery because that's a rabbit hole. You don't you go down enough. In, in, I in live our in life. that. Hole. You live in that rabbit hole, um, but. So there, you know, the the big question is who is the last? What is the who is the last Jedi? Who what does that mean going into the last movie? Going into this movie, it's the eighth of nine. Um, but how, so tell us how what can grammar <laughs> and what can word choice tell us about Star Wars? So okay, disclaimer that I'm hesitant to put this out there because I'm not um, I'm not young and cool, so I don't spend a lot of time in like message boards, fan group. Okay, I don't spend a lot of time in non AVET message boards. Oh and no, fan I, was, I was saying what cool, what young cool people are on message boards about Star Wars. Oh my Wars. god, I see this is how uncool I. I am. I have no idea. <laughs> but what I'm trying to say is this this could be fully explained out there somewhere in like a Reddit thread and I don't just don't know because I'm not there. Anyway, that said, what grammar can teach you about the last Jedi? So the director came out and said Luke is the last Jedi. We get that. Everybody knows that. That's not a spoiler, I hope. Spoiler alert. <laughs> I learned that from my kid. Um Grammatically, though, I don't think it means he's the last Jedi. I think it means he was the last Jedi, as in the previous one, the one before the next one. He was the last one, and Rey is the next one. Right. I think I, th I think that's how it's going to, whether it's Rey or whoever it is, right. I think it's going to end up that, yeah, Luke is the last Jedi because he was the previous one. It's the difference between last and final, exactly. which is something that you I don't think me. he's the final Jedi. I think he's just the previous one. He's the last one right yes. now. So, and that makes sense because as we've talked about, uh, he's our last hope. No, there is one more. There is one to come from right. Empire Strikes Back. So he was the previous hope. He was the previous hope, and now, <laughs> and now, and, and now, and now, the Porg is is our current hope. Um, what's the best thing you've read lately? Oh, oh, you can't put me on the spot like that. I put everybody. Oh, on the spot. um, the best thing I've read lately. Can I look at my Goodreads? Yeah, go ahead. You should have given me a warning on this. Well, I just started reading Dumplin'. Okay. 
And um, I, I can't tell you anything about it except I read the first page and it seems like it's going to be really good. It's got a black cover I got it at the library today. It looks, it does look interesting, <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay, what have I read lately? If our internet was a little faster, this wouldn't just be stretching out like that. That's okay. um, oh, oh my God, th- th- it was such an easy answer. Dr. Mooter's Marvels. I can't believe it took me that long. So the author is Kristen O'Keefe Aptowitz. Uh, and she wrote an autobiography of Mooter, the biography yeah yeah she didn't write somebody else's autobiography says the editor um she wrote she wrote a biography of dr mooter and i had already known of him when i read the book and she managed to write a biography of this very dead plastic surgeon from philadelphia and make it sound like a novel and it was so great that that's why we ended up going to the mooter museum and it was yeah it was one of the books one of the few books that you've read and and then immediately said you need to i think you handed it to me or something like that you 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 need to read this it was beautiful it was beautifully written and it was because like like all people, all you really know of Mooter is he's got the the Museum of Weird Crap, right? I mean, in general, like that most was all people, I knew. About yeah, him. like Mooter Museum. Right. Oh, it's got awesome stuff, and you read it, and like he's like this hidden American hero. He really is, and I was, well, you know this. I was a little not disappointed because I knew the museum was going to be a medical oddities museum, not a Doctor Mooter museum. Mm-hmm. But I wanted it to be a Doctor Mooter museum because of reading that book. So I wanted to go to the museum before I knew all this stuff about him. But once I knew all this stuff about him, I wanted a whole museum just about him. <laughs> He's totally my dead guy crush. I'm That's, sorry. <laughs> no, no. I, I, I think I'm cool at this. Uh, but I, but to answer your question too, other than that, because I saw this um, on my list, the M.R. Carey books, Fellside and The Girl with All yes. the Gifts. Those are excellent. And I'm, I want to read The Boy on the Bridge. I just have to get my hands on it first. Gotcha. Yep. So. I read Fellside again at your recommendation. Very, very cool. Very kind of science fictiony, like a little horrorish, yeah. but not really. Yeah, they're just really gripping stories. I feel about them the way I felt about Gillian Flynn. Okay. How I just wanted. I I read all of her books and I wanted ten more of her books to read. And I feel that way about about these books too. They suck me in the same way, and they have that same sort of. They're creepy and they're dark and I don't know how people come up with those ideas and I want more of them. <laughs> I have to mention one more. Go ahead. Word by Word by Corey Stamper. Okay. About Let's... the secret history of dictionaries. The secret life of dictionaries. because you collect dictionaries. And I collect dictionaries and I got to see her or hear her talk at the copy editors conference I went to and we're going to hear mm-hmm. her talk next month when she comes to Brockport. So, so what's cool about dictionaries? Everything is cool about dictionaries. <laughs> Wow, God, what are you, new? <laughs> uh, I love that, that th- I don't know. I mean, back when dictionaries were a new thing, everybody had one. They just lived in your house. Even our parents, they just had dictionaries. I have my mom's dictionary from high school. Will our daughter have a dictionary? No, probably well, not. Well, she will. She'll have you. She'll inherit your collection. Right. But she may be the only child of her age or anybody of her age who has a dictionary because we just don't need them anymore that way. We don't need the physical copies like everybody had them when we were younger um or young at all but um i just love that they're this constant record of how our language has changed and how i can pick one up from 100 years ago and it's completely different than what it is now and i love how they decide what words to add and that there's this building of people who are just they're documenting our language and they're they're helping build these things and i don't know most people don't think they have much of a place but if you knew how they work and how they get put together, they have a staggering place in our language and you just don't know it. It's like, 
It's like that episode in the Devil or that part in the Devil Wears Prada where uh, Meryl Streep's character says something like, you're wearing this blue and that was picked by the people in this room and you don't know it. You think it's just blue, but it was chosen by these people and Mm -hmm. it was handed down all these ways before it made its way to you. That's exactly what dictionaries are doing with the English language. <laughs> so uh before we uh before we end here do you want to i'll let you give a shout out and a plug for find more weird yeah so um i don't know if you talked about it here okay so um i don't I, I, most people have heard of the bloggist she's jenny lawson she's an author and a blogger and um she's really weird in the best way possible she collects taxidermy and weird dolls and i mean anyway a uh, year, year and a half ago, she took a road trip and she visited all these weird sites in the Southwest and I was fascinated. So we started doing our own weird sites and now we travel all over New York and sometimes the East Coast uh, visiting and documenting weird roadside attractions. And they are hashtag find more weird with no E, M-O-R weird. And uh, we're on Instagram. You have a favorite one? The world's largest filing cabinet. That's awesome. I mean, the Mütter Museum which is now in the collection, but that's not New York. So, uh, yeah, I think, well, that wasn't in New York either, was it? No, it was Vermont, but still, that was the best one. It still was the best one, a filing cabinet that was taller than a building. Mm-hmm. And just straight up, it was fantastic. And sometimes you hit them just right like that. Oh, and then there was Foamhenge. Mm-hmm. Foamhenge was good too. Yeah. We have about, I'd say, 200 more to hit. Definitely. So, all right, Jen Moritz, thanks for joining me. You podcast.